Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Charlie Angus is with us. Member of the Parliamentary Ethics Committee, New Democratic Party member. Charlie, what the hell happened? <laughs> oh, Roy, I, I, I'm, I don't know. I don't even know where to start. So, okay, for the listeners, this is the, the 17 hours of filibustering, the week in, week out, trying to get uh, the government to stop blocking the request for the documents about the payments that were made to the Trudeau family. Um, by the WE organization. Um, we, I had gone back to both the Conservatives and Liberals and said, we need to get something done here. Let's do a compromise. They had agreed to that, and then it looked like the, they were trying to talk the clock out. I always notice when people are, keep talking when we should get to a vote. And just two minutes before the meeting ends, the Bloc MP, Madame Goudreau, leaves the meeting. And another Bloc MP comes in, and she votes with the Liberals, and boom, that's it. Uh, all those relentless hours of debating to get these documents, we lose. We don't get the documents now. <laughs> so what are we talking, Or Are we talking Blanchette, her boss, who I wouldn't trust farther than I could throw him, cutting some side deal, or just absolute sheer incompetence of an MP walking in to a really important meeting and not even knowing what it was about and blowing us all out of the water? <laughs> Yeah, it's the substitute. Can tell me because I'm I just I I can't even get my head around it. All right, so they have the substitution of the MPs, which is weird to me anyway. Given where you were as far as the ethical or ethics committee's progress was concerned, and then and then after she votes the way she votes, the brain trust of the Bloc Québécois says, "Well, it was a translation issue. We didn't quite understand what they were saying." Do you guys not have translators? Do you not have that service available? I watched, How credible is that argument? It is not a credible argument, Roy. Um, I watched the. Uh, I watched it again, and just before we get to a vote, she complains that there's no translation. Mm. Uh, and I said to her in French that the translation was working, and Jacques Gord said the translation was working. Uh, she, the woman, was a little miffed with us, but then she said, "Yeah, okay, it's fine." But the thing is. You don't send in a substitute unless you tell them what's going on. Well, exactly. That's what I was thinking. Somebody had received a message from somewhere, so that somebody would have been the block MP who eventually did vote against the motion. Yeah. So my deductive reasoning skills, which are marginal, uh, would suggest to me that that she received a message. And I want to follow up on something you said a couple of minutes ago, and that is, was there a side deal between the Bloc Québécois, Blanchet, and Trudeau? Well, Blanchet is I, I really am having a hard time dealing with this guy. He's very authoritarian. He's he's just to me is a parliamentary jerk. Um, I don't think that he after fifteen hours of filibustering where we have we're finally forcing the liberals to, to agree to something that he allows this kind of screw up to happen on his watch. And then to to claim that it was you know, translation errors. You don't send someone into a hearing to represent your party unless they've been briefed. I've had to step out at key moments uh, on these relentless filibusters, and I, whoever went in knew what, the, knew what the order of battle was, knew what we had to do, knew why we had to do it, 
she would have known that. We were there to vote for one thing, and she came in in the last two minutes and voted and killed killed the motion because the rules are once a vote motion gets brought down, you can't bring it back in. So it's done. It's done. Even though the even though the block says they want to, and I think you said you'd like to get it restarted, but so so the rules say it's done. Yeah, yeah. they're going to try and uh, uh, plead incompetence and ignorance. So they'll they'll try and plead that the committee was being mean to them and didn't have proper translation. Well, that's not true. I can't I can't go along with such a ridiculous abusive process. We have rules for a reason. You follow the rules. You're expected to show up. You're expected to do your job. They blew it. So, uh, I mean, that's that's all those relentless hours on those documents to me, uh, blown by the wayside unless we... So now, to me, we move on. We've got other things we got to get done. I've got another motion going to be debated on Monday about getting the WE uh, study finished. I mean, it's, we're trying to finish the study. Right? It's not like we're starting it. We we did a lot of work. We don't what a disaster. have a lot of work left on it, but we've got to get a report to Parliament so we can get it on the record what happened. So we've had this, the most recent development. Before that, we had the prorogation of Parliament to make sure the committees didn't get the information that they wanted to pass on to the rest of the country. It's just been an absolute smorgasbord of embarrassment and disaster and delusion. And you know well, what I'm saying when I want to talk about delusion, you know what I mean. Then on Friday or Thursday, the ethics commissioner uh, released part of his findings on Bill Morneau that yeah. the fact that Bill got $40,000 in free flights from people he ended up giving 500, was going to give 500 million to, um, it's considered okay because he didn't realize he'd been paid and paid the money back right away. I mean, I... Come on, Charlie, cut a man a break. None of us would recognize 40,000 bucks gone from our bank accounts. Well, exactly. None of us would. We're all so wealthy. The last time he got himself in trouble was because he didn't bother to... Uh, to declare yeah. his, his French villain. He had forgot that he had it. But. Yeah. Today at Forbes.com, the most recent polling by John Zogby Strategies concerning voters under 30 years of age and their intentions on Tuesday, you have black and Hispanic voters very much on Biden's side, mm-hmm. while support for the Democrat candidate uh, among young white voters is, is dropping. So what's happening there? Uh, I think what's happening is, first of all, Overall, let me say, uh, Joe Biden is just about where he needs to be in order to win the national popular vote. He needs to be closer to Barack Obama's numbers than to Hillary Clinton's numbers among 18 to 29-year-olds. Obama got 61% of this age cohort. Biden's at 59%. That's pretty good. Hillary was only at 56 Uh, Trump is lower than where he was against Hillary, and so that's good. What's going on with young white voters, um, I suspect, is uh, maybe some concern, um, you know, about the the future. Maybe a realization that, um, for the younger of the two, that the only president they've known appeared to have good times until he was sucker-punched by... um, uh, by COVID-19. Uh, other than that, I'm not exactly sure. They do not uh, agree, and this is young white voters as well, do not w- agree with his handling of COVID, do not agree with his handling of, um, of the environment, climate change, uh, race relations, or anything else. So how do they see Biden? Because Biden's performance on the, uh, in the campaign has hardly been stellar. The man has been unimpressive at best. Um, 
Yeah, in my view. Yeah, yeah, in, in your view, uh, and in a lot of folks' views, he's not the Joe Biden that was. Uh, he had been a good speaker. Uh, on the other thirty hand, years ago, John, he was great. Thirty years ago, he was a very good speaker. Yeah, he's uh, older and slower, and frankly, instead of talking a mile a minute, he talks a half a mile a minute. But he's appeared to be robust and stable. Uh, I think that even among his supporters, there was some concern that he might fall, he might stumble, he might say the wrong thing. And I think, you know, basically what he's been doing is just not only holding his own, but not running an over-aggressive physical campaign, which, you know, could enhance the risk of, uh, you know, of, of making a, a mistake. Uh, obviously, COVID has gotten in the way. And so here's a guy who's not going to be visiting uh, every single state every day. Yeah. Well, he's he really has not been impressive uh... And, and, you know, Donald Trump has his issues, significant ones. We have doctors now, uh, the medical profession, really angry with him because his doctors are profiting from COVID by ascribing deaths from other causes to being from COVID so they can make, make an extra 2000 bucks. That doesn't resonate well. But, no, but, so, but so, 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 a so, referendum on, on Donald Trump. And yeah, but, so, a majority disapprove of Donald Trump. Yeah. And essentially, um, it's like... You know, in this country, we have the SAT exams, um, you know, the, the, the exam that you take to see if you can qualify for college. And if you show up um, with two lead pencils on a Saturday morning in a big gymnasium, you get 200 points just for showing up. I think uh, all Joe Biden really has had to do is show up and not make serious mistakes. Okay, so, so John, if we look at what, and you and I have talked about this several times, and you brought it up on a show uh, a few weeks ago when you said you thought maybe the attitude in the United States or the feeling in the U.S. might be similar to what if it would have existed in 1860 before the Civil War broke out. So there was a lot of concern about mm -hmm. post-election chaos, violence developing in the United States. How does it look to you today? How worried are you as an American, as someone with his finger on the pulse of your nation, how worried are you that we may see a total chaos break out? Total chaos may be a little too strong. Chaos, uh, yes. I don't think that there's a good scenario um, that we're going to see this Tuesday when, when voters cast their vote. Um, uh, first of all, uh, all the votes will not have been counted. That's important. There will be a waiting game. But then, you know, Tuesday the, the chances are very good that the votes counted on Tuesday will show either a very tight margin or even a Donald Trump victory, uh, in which case then he will probably declare a victory and say all of the millions, now it's, it's about 90 million Americans who have voted early, a lot of them by mail, those will not have been counted yet, that even if, um, you know, by the end of the week or later, that those votes are counted and counted on behalf of Biden, that you've got a sitting president who says, well, I'm not going to leave, I'm going to challenge this. And I think uh, the, these results, I think the, uh, the likelihood is very high that you're, that you're going to have serious protests. And as we've seen already in, in terms of race relations, some of those protests could get out of hand.
So a contested election, you think that's that's pretty much in the cards? Yes, I do. Um, for starters, Donald Trump um, has not given any indication uh, that he would accept the results, particularly if it's dependent on, on mail-in ballots, uh, of which there are, are many. And frankly, given what happened in this country in 2000, when you pretty much had a tie, and then it was a few hundred votes in Florida, ultimately, that were controversial and counted on behalf of what well, was a Supreme Court decision that actually elected George W. Bush. The Republicans were ready to take power. The Democrats uh, were, were kind of blindsided by that. I think you have a situation here where the Democrats are armed as armed can be with lawyers and prepared to challenge the results if in some way Donald Trump uh, is the winner. And so I think you're, you're going to have a battle royal no matter which side wins the election. So what happens if Donald Trump just wins the election? I, I do believe uh, that, that Joe Biden does not have any incentive to, um, to concede the election. Even though he says he will, his supporters won't accept it. We're that polarized. So 20 to 25 percent of Biden supporters, uh, as of my last poll, say it's impossible for them to accept the results if Trump wins. And another 20 to 25 percent say it's possible that they will not accept the results if Donald Trump uh, uh, wins the election. And so uh, this is not going to be over. No, no, it isn't. John, thank you for uh, today and uh, for all the shows you've done. And uh, I hope when we, I hope to talk to you next weekend. And I hope we have something definitive to talk about, or reasonably so, and not a lot of chaos to report on. But thank you for today. I hope that's the case. Take care, everyone. Colonel Peter Mansour is United States Army, retired. He was General David Petraeus, Petraeus, Executive Officer, during the surge in Iraq. And he's the author of Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus and the Remaking of the Iraq War. And Colonel Mansour is the Raymond E. Mason, Jr. Chair of Military History at The Ohio State University. Colonel Mansour, thank you very much for taking the time. And after months of unrest and violence in American cities, do you have concerns about additional and perhaps more severe violence erupting in the United States following Tuesday's election? Well, I do. I mean, there's an increased chatter among right-wing militia groups that the FBI is tracking that uh, are talking about a coming civil war. Uh, gun sales in the United States are at an all-time historic high uh, as people you know, buy weapons to protect themselves. Um, but I think that the danger is, is not some sort of widespread uh, violence. We're talking about a small subset of Americans who believe that a violence is, uh, is the way to uh, advance their agendas. But, but even, a, you know, even if you're talking 1% to 2% of Americans, that's still a, a lot of people. And uh, that could significantly disrupt probably not the election, but the period after the election, especially if the election is close and contested. Do you, do you think that's the case, regardless of who wins? I just took some phone calls uh, in the last segment, and there's a lot of opinion that if 
that if uh, Donald Trump were to win the election, then the people on the left of the spectrum in the United States would be violent. And I've heard the same thing you've just told us, that if if uh, if uh, Biden wins and the certain people on the right will become violent, like militias, does it matter? Is there going to be trouble either way? Um, I think it does matter if uh, if the president were to get reelected and if the election was unambiguous, then the left would protest, but it would be largely mass peace, peaceful protests. Um, if the if the president were to try to steal the election, in in the words of the left, if he were to try to invalidate vote counts, for instance, or have Republican legislatures in certain states put forward competing slates of electors that make make it seem like he's actually um, stealing the election, uh, then you could have uh, riots uh, in our cities, which are predominantly, most of our cities are uh, Democratic-leaning jurisdictions. Uh, that's possible. If, um, on the other hand, if Biden wins, if he wins big, uh, you may have a little bit of violence, but uh, if it's unambiguous and if the states confirm that he has won, uh, pretty handily, then I think, you know, we'll have dodged a bullet. But if it's a very close and contested win and Trump refuses to concede, then you'll, that is really the, the recipe for the largest violence because the right-wing groups will come out in force uh, and try to dominate the streets. So here's the question I have for you now. Why is this happening in America in 2020? Why? And what does this project for the years to come? Well, we've vilified each other. And it starts with the, with the political leaders who have uh, demonized the other side. Uh, they've uh, pandered to their bases. Their elections are largely uncontested because of the gerrymandered districts in the United States. Um, and and so if you say that the other side is the enemy and is evil and, uh, you know, in the Republicans' words, is social, are you going to bring socialism to the United States? Or in the Democrats' words, they're going to bring uh, uh, dictatorship to the United States. Uh, then Americans uh, will turn on each other, which they have rhetorically, uh, and eventually that could lead to a serious outbreak of violence if it's not curbed this this is what I think the message of the Biden campaign is, that we need to return to civility, and they believe their candidate is the best uh, one to do that. Do you find this particularly abhorrent as a multi-decade member of the senior officer ranks of the U.S. military? That What's happening in your country now? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely horrible. Uh, there is, um, I forget what group is tracking um, the mood of the, the people, but there the mood of the American people in terms of uh, vilifying one another has not been this, uh, this intense since the, right before the, the Civil War, which, of course, took uh, 600,000 American lives. Yeah. So um, this is uh, deeply, deeply disturbing. And uh, the, the problem is, is um, the president may try to drag the military into the political thicket if there's a close and contested election and, uh, and demonstrations break out in, in America's cities. I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, is there a scenario where the U.S. military would be called on and would respond to enforce an end to what the president might describe as unremitting violence? Well, this gets to American law. 
there's the Posse Comitatus Act, which was passed after the Civil War, that says federal forces cannot be used to enforce the law, domestic laws, but the National Guard can under the control of the state governors. Uh, but then there's a loophole called the Insurrection Act, which was uh, passed way back in 1807, which uh, allows the president to use federal forces to put down insurrections in within the borders of the United States. And President Trump has threatened to use the Insurrection Act to put uh, federal troops into America's cities. He threatened that bet last summer when uh, he famously walked across Lafayette Square after using federal troops to clear it. Um, and then holding up a Bible upside down in front of St. John's Episcopal Church. The, um, the good news is because of that event, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Secretary of Defense have both said it would be inappropriate to use the military uh, in a post-election uh, scenario where the election is undecided. Um, and I think be- because that happened, um, they, are, would, they would potentially refuse to... Uh, issue the orders uh, if the president um, uh, if the pre- president used the uh, into America's cities. Let me ask you just one more question, Colonel Mensor, and thank you very much for the time today. And I apologize because I woke you up this morning with an early call. I apologize for that. Um, how do you unwind the situation in the United States? How, how does this get? How does this get healed and fixed? Well, I won't. I don't think it would be fixed under under a, a second Trump administration. He he clearly is the candidate of chaos. Um, he's governed that way. There's no way he wouldn't continue to govern that way. Um, and so, if he were reelected, we would have to wait for 2024. And uh, if America is still held together, we'll see what um, what becomes of the Republican Party and whether uh, you know the follow-on to Trump. Uh, and whatever Democratic candidate uh, emerges can um, can restore some sort of uh, civility to our political discourse. If Biden wins, um, and he wins handily, where there, where it's uncontested, like maybe 59 percent to 41 percent, or you know 57 to 43, and he wins the electoral college without uh, dispute, then I think the Republican Party may may believe that. It needs to change, or it will continue to lose elections uh, in the United States. And what they want more than to support Donald Trump is to remain in office. And so that would force them, perhaps, to change the way they approach elections. And uh, that may bring more civility into our political discourse. When I look at the uh, the headline uh, on Global News, Canadians are feeling pandemic fatigue. Experts say greater good message isn't enough. What's the bottom line? Well, the bottom line, Roy, is we are feeling a lot of fatigue. At least half of us say that we're really getting tired of following these safety measures. But the interesting thing is it hasn't really at the moment chipped away at our resolve. We are feeling tired, but most of us, 93% of us, also say that we're uh, following the public health advice that uh, that we're being provided by our politicians and especially uh, in, in, in many instances by our, our healthcare professionals. So we're getting tired of it. But we're still following the advice. So are we tired of the messengers more than the message? I think that what's happening is a combination of things, Roy. Uh, I think the first thing is it's been a long time. 
Yeah. I mean, we've been locked down for a long time. And not only that, we seem to have been, you know, improving. We were, things were getting better, and now we've gone back in another direction. And when we first started asking people about how long this would last, which was back in, you know, March and April, what they were telling us is this something that this is something that was probably going to be over by the summer. Uh, now, when we ask people about how long it's going to last, they really can't see what the end is going to be. To those, for those people who are prepared to say what the end is going to be, they're thinking it's more like six months or eight months or a year from now. So what's happened is we've been, you know, hunkered down for a while. Uh, we saw some improvement. We've now gone back to the way things were. And that horizon that we see for improvement has been pushed out. And we're also dealing with the reality we know now how many small businesses in this country are under threat of not surviving. Uh, we found out just a couple of, uh, well, I think it was last week, that 1.3 million Canadians are been unemployed now for six months, which a university professor who did a study told us about, and, and said that that is a critical time for employees, because if you haven't been working for six months, you're not that attractive to employers. Maybe the fact that it's during COVID will mitigate, but there are results that we've seen, negative results, Daryl, that I think come to bear, because in the spring, we didn't know. Now we look back and we see some carnage behind us. And that's why 81% of the people that we interview say that uh, they're having a very hard time at the moment planning for the future. Mm -hmm. uh, what we're seeing in all of the survey research that we do is that economic pessimism has increased by a lot over the course of, uh, of the COVID uh, situation. And people's uncertainty and discomfort with what they think the future is going to be has increased. You know, I uh, received an, an email Around th just uh, during the Thanksgiving weekend, and uh, basically said the actions um, taken by the political figures who and health professionals who've been telling us what we should be doing. Uh, this email mirrored, sort of mirrored a lot of commentary that I saw and heard, and that the, there's conflicting messages. To be told in October that Christmas may not happen is over the top to many, I suspect. But when you hear somebody say that, look, uh, Thanksgiving, you really can't gather with your family or you shouldn't gather with your friends, but, but on two days later, it's okay to go to the, to the box store with people you don't even know. There's, there's messaging that conflicts in people's heads. And, and I don't think that, I mean, I think that that's a problem. I see, keep see, seeing that over and over. Is there anything of that in your, in the, in the polling that you did? Yeah, what we're seeing is people are developing this view that uh, 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 as far as anything that involves public gatherings, they're sort of taking it upon themselves not to do it. So, it, you know, whether the government or whether public health officials are telling them to do one thing or another, uh, people on their own are deciding to do things, for example, like not have birthday parties like they, they used to. Tonight, I'm expecting that we're going to see almost nobody out there trick-or-treating. Uh, maybe in some smaller communities where everybody knows each other, there, there might be more of that or some more, uh, I'd say, uh, bubbled neighborhoods, you might be seeing that kind of thing. But in most places, it's going to be a very dark night. And right now, uh, most people, when we interview them and we ask them about how they're going to celebrate Christmas, only 17% of us are, are saying that we're going to be doing it as we normally do it. Well, that's very interesting. Um, so can I tie all this together and ask you to take us back to the issue of Canadians telling Ipsos their mental health is being affected? What are you hearing? Yeah, we are hearing that. People are really having a difficult time coping. Uh, particularly younger people are having a difficult time coping. Uh, they're, they're having, uh, you know, their education's delayed. Uh, you know, if they're just coming into the job market, they're having a harder time finding jobs. And they're also at the stage of their life when they're doing a lot more social things. 
You know, they're out there interacting with their friends or, you know, getting involved in romantic relationships. All of these things have been greatly affected uh, by what's going on with COVID. And, yeah, I, what we're seeing in our survey results is this growing anxiety about, uh, about what the situation, uh, particularly as we face winter, is going to be like. And, and, you know, the other part of this, Roy, is that there's really two classes of people, and one of them is doing all the talking, and one of them is doing is in the situation where they're being asked to do most of the behaving. And it's all the people who are kind of in the public sector or are, you know, being working at home now, but they're just participating in Zoom calls, but their, their livelihoods haven't really been that affected, versus all these private sector workers that are doing things like driving trucks or, you know, working in the service industry or whatever, whose lives have been completely devastated by what's been going on here. Uh, so the, this differentiation between these two classes of people, uh, uh, we're starting to see friction started, starting to emerge around that. Yeah, so let me ask you then uh, about, is there any kind of, when we talk about friction developing, I should rephrase, rephrase this. I've seen in Europe um, and seen video of it that there are, in some nations, there's real pushback against any suggestion that there will be return to restrictions or, or lockdowns. Um, Italy, I think Austria, France, different countries, people have said, no, I don't think so, I've had enough. Is there that kind of mood developing in Canada, or are we still still fair distance from that, if it ever were to happen here? A fair distance from that, and in fact, in some things, for example, like uh, like wearing masks, even stronger than what we've been advised to do by our politicians. So, you know, we uh, we ask people, you know, when you go when you uh, go any place that's indoors with other people, what percentage of you are wearing masks? It's almost three quarter of us quarters of us are. And then we ask them the question: Should masks be mandatory? Eighty six percent saying that we should be wearing masks uh, in, yeah. in a mandatory fashion. So, you know, Canadians are pretty tough about this, and they figure that we need to do these things in order to get past that. So if governments can get aligned with the willingness of Canadians to uh, uh, to uh, participate in trying to fight this disease, but get their messages cleaned up uh, and, and consistent, and beyond that, making sure that everybody truly is participating in fighting uh uh, fighting this disease, uh, that that would, I think, build more public confidence. Yeah, say it once, we understand it, we'll get at it, we know how to do it, don't keep telling us, is sort of what I'm hearing. But... Well, it's like the, the federal government's advertising program that just comes out and says the same thing over and over and over again. Everybody gets that. I know, yeah. you know public health people will say you need to reinforce that. But what we need to know now is also uh, how we're going to come out of this, yeah. how we're going to deal with this and come out of it. And that's where... People are really, uh, really confused because their view is that uh, the healthcare threat is real, but they don't think it's necessarily going to affect them as much as the economic effects are starting to, uh, to really, to really hurt people's lives and have been really hurting people's lives for a while. And they, you know, there's a, uh, there's a real concern about whether or not we're going to be able to find a way to get around the corner on this. Yeah, that's that's necessary because the "we're all in this together" message is is a little tired. Yeah, and Canadians would like to think that everybody's all in this together, but as I said before, it's pretty clear that there's one group of people. Say, for example, if you're working in the public sector, uh, you're maybe working at home doing some Zoom meetings, your pension hasn't been affected, your paycheck hasn't been affected, but there's all sorts of other people on the other side of this who you're putting conditions and rules in place for that are really being damaged. The numbers on small businesses, which, by the way, are the biggest creator of jobs in the country, uh, are really, really shocking. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever 
you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.